<laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I see it. There we go. I like anything that makes it feel less sort of rigid and oh, perfect. Hey, I'm glad. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you uh, had the energy to wake up, get out of bed, and haul yourself to be in this room. We're actually going to talk about here in a little bit why, why that matters. Like, why not just stay home and watch it on TV or something? There's something about the fact that we're here physically together that I think matters. I, um, I want you to, if you can, think back to, I'll, I'll throw out a, a, a time in your life. We'll say nine years old. You're nine years old, and I want you to think about whatever your tradition was. It may have been Christmas morning or Christmas Eve. But what words or feelings would describe nine-year-old you Christmas Eve, Christmas morning? Oh. Hope? <laughs> Crazy? Excited? Sad? Sad? Yeah. What else? Playful? Playful, joyful, happy, sad, anxious. All right, knowing what you know now, you're no longer nine years old. This is speculation, but I want you to imagine what words would describe your mother and father in the same moment? Tired. Cranky. Cranky. Sleepy. Broke. Broke. <laughs> Broke, for sure. Now, they're also having, I'm sure there's some good stuff, but isn't it interesting, the same experience, the same moment, looked at from two different experiences, two different perspectives. Changes it. But it's the same moment. Now, I'll own, for just a minute, can, I want to get my Grinch out, all right? I'm, I'm going to, this is, I'm just, I'm not advocating this for you. I'm not saying, hey, I want you to leave here and be grumpier about Christmas. I'm just going to own my Grinchiness, all right? And I always say this, this, there's some risk to this, because you may have one of these bumper stickers, and if you do, God bless you, I'm so happy for you. But I will never have... I don't think a bumper sticker that says, let's keep Christ in Christmas. And I'm going to tell you why. It's just, I'm okay if we got Jesus out of it. This thing we call this December 25th moment. Let me tell you, I'm going to give you some, I'm just going to hold my grumpiness for a second. Um, the median debt of Americans, median debt, is $16,000 of credit card debt. The median mortgage debt is $172,000. The median school debt, for those who have school debt, is $49,000. And cars is $28,000. Less than 50% of Americans have $1,000 in the bank. And the average money spent at Christmas is about $1,000. So 
So almost all of America enters January 1st with a negative net worth. And part of why you're knowing now what you do know about perhaps what your parents were feeling was the stress of the finances. So, <laughs> what I mean by, I, I don't think Jesus has any ownership in the sort of financial bankruptcy of human beings in celebration of his arrival. So I'm not in any way, I'm not, tr- I, I, and I've been, I've been a Christian since about ninth grade. And I, rem- the ver- I think almost every year I've heard a sermon about the materialism of Christmas. So it, and it hasn't gotten any better. In fact, our, our, our debts and our stress around finances has increased at the same time our prosperity sort of has increased. So it's just a weird story. I'm just acknowledging that, that you could be here like some of us who don't have just pleasant memories and you could have stress, that Christmas is about this idea of a perspective. And I guess I say all that to say I, I, I don't want to, I'm going to try to avoid just being sentimental tonight. Or this, tonight, I'm pretending it's Christmas Eve. Um, this morning. My I think perhaps one of my more embedded memories of Christmas, and I will admit that over time, my, my memory has sort of, it, it's sanitized. But Christmas Eve was always spent at Momor's house. In, in, in Swedish, your grandparent is identified by paternal or maternal, and maternal grandparents start with more, more fa and more more, and more more, um, was my grandmother. She immigrated. I've told you that story. She immigrated when my mom married my dad in Sweden, and they, they moved here to America. And so we always spent Christmas Eve at Momor's house. I, the reason I say I, have, I just have such good, warm memories. I, can, I, can, I, can, I just love the food. We always had pickled herring and, and potatoes. Even as a kid, I loved pickled herring and potatoes, and then we would have the special boiled ham and the food, and just, the, the, I loved it all. I, 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 it's interesting, because now as I'm more accurately picturing it, I remember, oh yeah, my mom was, usually by the end of dinner, pretty drunk. And she was, she was my grandmother's only child, and usually somewhere at Christmas, somebody's having a fight. Those two, or my stepdad, somebody's having a fight. But I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm, just, I'm loving the good food, and then I'm thinking about after, then we get to go do the presents. And every Christmas Eve, without fail, my grandmother would hand me two small, soft packages. About this big. And they were soft. Any guesses what might be in those? There was absolutely no mystery to the gift. There was no wonderment, there's no, gosh, I hope this is what I've been wanting. This may be the one, these two small soft packages. One was socks, and the other was underwear. (laughs) From your grandmother. A little creep factor in there, but anyhow. (laughs) 
I have, I'm, and I'm sure that was, my grandmother, she had very limited income, but I know for sure, I know for sure she gave me other presents than socks and underwear. I know that. I have racked my brain. I cannot remember a single other present she gave me. All I can remember is the socks and underwear. And in fact, it brings me real joy, comfort, having that memory. We've, we've perpetuated, our kids are mid-30s now, and their mom, still in their stocking, will put dollar store deodorant and toothpaste and always their socks and underwear. This morning, I guess I'm calling our conversation today a socks and underwear Christmas story. I'm not going to say anything where you go, whoa, did not see that coming. Wow, I've never heard that. Everything is going to sound so familiar. But I hope that its familiarity doesn't diminish the potential for the joy that it could bring. Two of the biographers of Jesus spend a bit of time in their biography of Jesus and what we call the, their, their story, their gospel, the, the what happened at Christmas, very important. And it's, it's marvelous and traditional that at this time of year we spend time looking at the what happened. I want to look at a, one of the other writers of Jesus' life who did not spend much energy on the what happened, but the why it happened. And so it's a bit of an unusual Christmas passage, but I think it's perfectly Christmas from the writer John, and not from his biography, not from his gospel, but from his letter. So in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, we read this version of the why of Christmas. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy can be complete. So in our little socks and underwear Christmas, I, I, I think there's this sense I get from John that he wants to prove to you something. I think he wants to prove to you that that word that we find in Matthew's gospel, the word that you're familiar with, the word that we're saying today, this word, Emmanuel. He wants to prove to you, Emmanuel, that God is with us. Emmanuel means God with us. And so John's going to share the story of 
how we know that God is with us. It, 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 there's a little bit of a sense when you, when you hear him using all these descriptors. I'll repeat them for you. That which we have heard, we heard Jesus, and we have seen with our eyes, and we looked upon. He, he's not repeating himself. What he's saying is, I, I, I saw him like in a distance. I heard him, and I saw him. And then not only did I see him, but I got close, and I just sort of stared at him for a long time. That's what that next word means. I, I, I ogled him for a long, long time. And then I touched him. I touched him physically. Jesus is fully human. Our first little present that we unwrap about Christmas is that Christmas proves to me that Jesus is fully human. Every story is written in the midst of another story. The story out of which this letter emerges, there was another story going on that was from very devout and very spiritual people. Their, their spirituality had in their minds evolved them to the place where anything that you could touch, if I could touch it, whatever that may mean, what we would call the material world, if I could touch it, it was evil. Anything that was touchable is evil. Anything that is not touchable is good. And so they were called the, the Gnostics. It, it was emerging over a long period of time. And just like in our day, there were formal Gnostics, but there was also just this informal attitude that is sort of infected the way people saw the world. And if you could touch it, if you could feel it, it's bad. And if it's immaterial, then it is good. So therefore, they retold the story of Jesus and were saying, we love, we love that Jesus is this idea of God, the immaterial Jesus. But he can't have been human. And so they just simply rewrote what we've come to accept. They would have pictured that as Jesus walked along the beach, there would have been no footprint. He wasn't real, in a sense, because that was bad. Now, my experience is today, that's, that's not... I, I don't hear that as often. I don't hear this idea that Jesus being fully human is out of the picture. But there are other stories that are being told about him that I don't think are fully true. They come out of a sense of spirituality and trying to understand the world, but I think folks are maybe imposing on him something that isn't true. The idea that Jesus um, was only a good person. You've heard that. That, that Jesus was a great example, that Jesus was sort of the most evolved of humans, but the one where folks more often struggle, it seems today, is this idea of our second little package, that Jesus is God. It seems to me that the scriptures in this beautiful story are never trying to separate those. They're trying to integrate that. Now, I understand that's not, it's not easy for us to grasp, so the Bible just continues to move along as if it's true, that Jesus is fully human and Jesus is fully God, and both matter. For all eternity, it matters. Now, I, I have often been in the midst of a conversation about the, the humanity and 
divinity of Jesus. And I have literally heard, I, I don't care about any doctrine. I have always, up till today, resisted the urge to be a smartass in that moment and say, is that a doctrine you have? Is your doctrine that you have no doctrine? Because you see, we all live with a sense of doctrine, a, a sense of dogma, a sense of what we believe to be true. And so somebody says to me, I, man, I don't, I, have, I don't believe in discussing this doctrine. becomes then a, a, a doctrine. In this place, in the scriptures, and in other places, Jesus is described as the word the logos, the expression of God. You, you perhaps remember in John's other letter where he begins, in the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was this word, this expression, this word that is difficult for us to translate and capture. The best we've come up with is this word. Jesus is fully human, and I believe Jesus is fully God. We know he's fully human because you could hear him, you could see him, you could ogle him, and you could touch him. And he's fully God. He is the Word. Now, if I were to ask you to think for a moment, think about a place where you are around the same people often. Let's say you go to the gym every day or three times a week at about the same time. Chances are you're going to see the same people at the gym. If you're there for a long time, you will sort of know their routine. I remember there was at the gym when I was going regularly, there was this guy, and, and I, I always knew, he was a big fella, I always knew that he was going to spend most of his time on the bench press. He had a huge chest, and he loved to load up the, the rack machine where he could bench press by himself. And the reason I feel like I know him is he never took the weights back off. <laughs> and he, and I'll be honest with you, he was too big for me to confront. So I had to always begin my workout with taking half of his weights off. Maybe you, maybe you ride the bus to work. You see the same people every day. You know something about them. You know things about them, but you wouldn't say you know them. This is maybe theological, but... The knowing about is fine. It's good. It's, it's, it's marvelous. And there is a way of knowing about God that we call general revelation. I can know about God. I can see in, in the beauty of anything that was created, I see a creator. I know something about God when I see mountains or oceans or deserts or people but I don't know God because of what I know about God in the way that I don't know this guy at the gym. I just know about the guy at the gym. The only way I can even begin to say I know someone is if somehow words have been exchanged, what we call words. If somehow I've gotten to know them. There's nobody in my life I would say I know that I have not in some way exchanged words with. This idea of logos is a specific and a special kind of revelation. Words can do what pictures could never do. Uh, let me read for you a passage. 
It's a fairly famous passage. You might even begin to remember reading this book. The dark spruce forest frowned on either side of the frozen waterway. The trees had been stripped by a recent wind of their white covering of frost, and they seemed to lean toward each other, black and ominous in the fading light. A vast silence reigned over the land. The land itself was desolation, lifeless, without movement, so lone and cold that the spirit of it was not even of sadness. There was a hint in it of laughter, but of a laughter more terrible than any sadness, a laughter that was mirthless as the smile of the sphinx, a laughter cold as the frost and partaking of the grimness of infallibility. It was the masterful and incommunicable wisdom of eternity laughing at the futility of life and the effort of life. It was the wild, the savage, frozen-hearted, Northland, wild. A passage from the White Fang, Jack London's famous novel. If I asked you to paint a picture of the cold tundra, of the Arctic North, you, you could, or take, you know, take a picture, paint a picture, you could do a marvelous job, but you could not evoke the same feelings, I don't think that Jack London could. You couldn't have the, diverse, the, the, the depth of meaning. But words are how we begin to know someone. Jesus is the word of life. If you're female, I'd like for you to close your eyes. If you're male, I'd like for you to look at me. I'm gonna say three words. And I want you to try to picture or experience what it is I want to communicate. Here are the three words. Women, your eyes are closed. Men, you're looking at me. I'm going to say it three times. I love you. I love you. I love you. All right, look up. So, ladies, what did you picture? What did you experience? Did, it, did a person come to mind? Did a feeling come up for you? Oh, that was a question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, a picture did. Like, what was it? What did you see? Anybody picture their spouse or a parent? Who saw a spouse maybe saying those words? Yeah. Nice. Did anybody feel a sense of warmth? Yeah. Men, did any of you picture your spot? Well, that's a dangerous question. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Should not have gone there. Um, did any of you picture warmth? A spouse? Someone who cares for you? you? Ladies, you're going, well, wait. <laughs> the marvelous part of the, the word that became flesh is that it was language in 3D. You see, while I was saying those words, I was, you, even the men probably couldn't see that, I was kind of rolling my eyes like I was sarcastic. I was doing this, kind of doing like that. Like I was choking on the words. 
the, the, the words, the words weren't fully understood with your eyes closed. You had to have your eyes open to, to catch, in my case, sarcasm. It's why this combination of Jesus is fully human and Jesus is fully God. He is the Word of God that we can touch and we can see. We can, we can hear and see. We see it all in 3D. The words, I love you, from Jesus are also demonstrated in Jesus. In fact, his art, what we call this incarnation, this idea of pouring God into a body, is consistent with the message that says, I love you. And this next passage, this next package, which is God wants to get close to you. Your acknowledgement of God, your reverence for God, your service to God, your obedience, your belief. I wonder if those are a means to an end, not an end in themselves. They are experiences we have, but they're not the, ex the experience fully of what God is wanting for us. Means to an end is, is similar to me giving you a million dollars, but under one condition, that you never spend it. I'll give you a million dollars, but I'll write you a check. Only condition, you can never spend it. Money is the best example I know of, of a means to an end. There is absolutely, in one sense, I gave somebody, I had a, let's see what I, I don't know what I've got here in my wallet. I've got a couple of dollars. If I were to ask you, what is the value of this? Well, it's, it can't be much because it's just paper and ink. It's, oh, there's a 50 in there. Somebody gave me a $50 bill. I've never, I never have a $50 bill. That's really awesome. Um, so we'll use that one. That's about as big as I ever get, right there. What, what is that worth, if I were to ask you? It's worth almost nothing, but it, as a means to an end. If all, if for the rest of my life, if I put this in, a, in an envelope and put it away, it has no value. So I'm not saying obedience and belief, and those are all, they're, they're not invaluable, but they're invaluable when they're isolated from the experience of this gift that God wants to give. The Christmas story is God with us. God wants to be close to you. Now I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me, this is just, a, I'm just giving an illustration. I'm not saying God's asking you to, to work hard so he can get close to you. I'm not saying that God's, God's all uptight about trying to be close to you. I'm saying that, that that experience you have of wanting to acknowledge him, to believe in him, to trust him, and to love him is a means to an end to be close to him. You may have better words for it. That's as good as I can do. Let me say it a different way. God wants you to not be so lonely. I think Jesus came. He did, he did marvel. He did everything. He's, he bought us. He saved us. He did everything. But one of the stories of Jesus coming is because he knows you're lonely. 
He knows you're lonely. And one of the stories of the scripture is how do we change this internal human story that says I'm all alone. I've spent most of my adult life, I guess all my adult life, in some way thinking about what we call church. And I, I, there, there's lots of good stuff out there about church. It's all true, I'm sure, at some level for those people. For, is, is it about worship? Is it about evangelism? About sir? There's all kinds of good stories about church. I think church in many ways is the story of God wanting to be close to us and God wanting to heal the loneliness that almost every human I know experiences. My best memory of church, my formative image of it still comes from when I was just a brand new Jesus follower. I was in ninth grade. And I lived a few blocks away from this little tiny, tiny North American Baptist church. And my friend who sat in front of me in social studies invited me to come to prayer meeting one night. I don't know if you know anything about Baptist ritual or Baptist sort of rhythm, but and I, in the South for sure it still happens that church is a pretty, pretty important place where you go. And so you go Wednesday night for prayer meeting some of you are shaking your head. I can see my other Baptist exiles here. So there's prayer meetings on Wednesday night. Sunday morning is church. Then there's Sunday school after. For us, it was after, I think. And then um, Sunday night was another church experience. Let me tell you, I loved, I loved going to church. I loved it. You see, I was coming from a home where my, the best feeling I had, the safest feeling I had, was if I could get out the door and close it and I didn't hear my name. At this time in my life, my mom was always drunk by six o'clock at night. My stepdad was, had his own story and his own issues and I was afraid to be home. But I was not a, I was a socially awkward kid all through junior high. And the truth is, I didn't have anywhere to go often. I didn't really have friends. Until my friend invited me to go to prayer meeting in October of my freshman year of high school. And we sat in a circle. There was my friend who was my age and another friend his age. And then there was all old people. That's it. And then the pastor, he was kind of youngish. He was in his 30s, mid-30s. And I, for months, maybe years, I never missed again. Now, I, I do remember the experience of that night going home and having this sense that Jesus had made me clean. I do remember that sense that I was connected to God I remember from that moment, even though I didn't really know much about praying, but I remember when I could get out the door and close it, and I didn't hear my name, Carl, well, I'd have to come back. Once I got away, once I turned the corner, and I know nobody could see me, and I could feel, I felt, I felt safe. 
And I remember from that moment until I got to church, I remember I would talk to God. I would just talk to God. I'm just a ninth grade kid and I'm just talking to God. It was, I, 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 can, I can still picture how I was, I don't know, the amaz- how that was. And then when I got there, they were happy to see me. They were always so happy to see me. And, and we talked about God and we talked about the Bible and I learned and man, I soaked it up. The least lonely time in my life was that experience in early ninth grade when I was walking to church with God and when I got there I was so happy to see my friends and they weren't people my age even they were old people we knew each other's stories I think I think church has something to do with that. Let me, let me read why I say that. This, this idea of fellowship with God and, and then other people, this is the word that he uses. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you can have fellowship with us so you can be not lonely. And indeed, our not loneliness, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The last present. Why? Why Christmas? Why God who is fully human? God who is fully God? Why in a, in a human package? Why, why, why does he care about us not being lonely? And he ends it with these words. I'm writing these things. I'm adding about Christmas. So that our joy can be complete. I believe God wants you to have joy. I think the reason we have Christmas is for God to prove to you that he wants to be with you. Let me pray. Lord, I, I am so grateful that I get to be here with my friends in a way that is different than if I was just listening to something or seeing something, but physically seeing their faces, feeling love. I'm so grateful. Oh God, I, I, I want to pray for maybe that person who's sitting in this room or perhaps watching on video that feels so desperately lonely. I pray that the Jesus who is fully all and embodied in the people in this room and around the world would be experienced by that person. I pray for our loneliness. And I thank you that you bring good news of a world that no longer has to be alone. Amen. On the night that Jesus, at the end of his earthly experience, on the night that he was betrayed, it says he took the the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this 
remembering me. Remembering that I'm with you. And I'm for you. And you're not alone. Uh, The great, man, the enemy has lied to so many of us that we're all alone. Thank you. This is the wine. This is the wine. This is the juice. You know, it, it's gotten where it's not funny anymore. I understand that. But it's still, this is the blood which was shed for us, or symbolic, it's symbolically that. Jesus said this, this is the cup, which is the blood of the new covenant. We have juice in the white cup, and we have wine in the brown cup. I always think about Jesus when he said this is the new covenant, this is the new deal. The old deal felt like it was all about you and on you. And it was futile. You intuit that you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to get your act together enough. And the new covenant, as Jesus said, it's all about me. So he thanked the Father, and they shared in that. I invite you to come and experience the bread and the wine. Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Walk in the light.